Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Again, I'm glad that you could join us for worship today. Uh, I wanted to uh, invite you, especially if I've never met you um, or you're wanting to know a little a little bit more about City on a Hill, I'd love to invite you out for a socially distanced cup of coffee or or lunch. It's my treat. Or if you're just not comfortable gathering together uh, in person yet, um, I would love to do a Zoom call uh, just to get to know you and tell you a little bit more about our church. You can do so by filling out a Connect card. Um, you can fill out, uh, click the QR code here, scan that with your phone, uh, fill out that Connect card, and we'll follow up with you on a time to get together and, and, and get to know each other a little better. Um, our values here at City on a Hill are the gospel, community, and mission. The gospel is the good news that Jesus died on the cross for us to pay for our sins and that all who trust him can have a new relationship with God through him. And that's available to anybody who will receive it. A uh, community is um, that we believe we are created for relationships with other people. And uh, we live out those relationships in community groups where we study the Bible together. We, we share life together and we uh, care for each other as friends and family. And then lastly, mission. Um, we believe that the good news is too good to keep to ourselves. So we live our lives to share the good news of the gospel as well as live out the good news of the gospel in what we do. And one way we do that as a church is through our neighborhood partners. We partner with different entities throughout the neighborhood, coming alongside them to help them in all that they're doing. And one of those is uh, English High School. We've been uh, working with them for about a year and a half, and we're going to pro- uh, provide, help provide Thanksgiving dinner for, for lots of families who are in need. Um, there's a way you can be a part of that. You can be a part of that by actually going and helping deliver those meals. Um, and so if you want to fill out the Connect card, just put Thanksgiving on it. Um, we'll follow up with you to help you get plugged in to serve that way. And then lastly, um, we're going to do another Q&A. We did a Q&A a few weeks ago about one of our sermons, uh, but on Wednesday, December 2nd, uh, we're going to do another Q&A centered around the Bible. Uh, how to read the Bible, what the Bible's about. Um, can you trust the Bible? So we want you to text questions over the next couple of weeks to 617-286-2006. And we'll, we'll uh, make sure to get some information on how to be a part of that Q&A. Now, when it comes to movies, rarely uh, do the sequels to movies actually live up to the original. Very rarely does that happen. Usually the original is so much better and we shouldn't mess with it. So, you know, like the movie Dumb and Dumber, there should never have been sequels to the movie Dumb and Dumber. Uh, Medea 2, boo, a a Medea Halloween, like shouldn't have been a second one. Um, Paul Blart Mall Cop got got a sequel. Like just leave the original alone. But sometimes the sequel is actually better than the original movie. And one of those movies is Sister Act 2. Sister Act 2 is a revelation. It is a fantastic movie. Um, Lauren Hill is unbelievable in this movie, you know, who was a part of the Fiji, uh, the Fugees and, um, and who... Uh, had an incredible album called The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. Um, I introduced my girls to this a couple of months ago and they were absolutely floored, um, at especially her singing. And it was such, it was so much better than the original movie. Well, today is kind of like a sequel. Uh, this is part two of our kind of mini series in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount around the Lord's Prayer, looking at fasting and prayer and seeking the kingdom of God. So I hope today is even better than last week. And I really believe it's going to be because This is the peak or the apex of the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's 
prayer. As we've talked about over the last uh, couple of weeks or several weeks since the middle of September is that the Sermon on the Mount is inviting you and I into the good life, the life that you and I were created to live with God. And, and so today we're going we're gonna to unpack the Lord's Prayer and, and how it's key and how it, this longing and this in fasting and prayer for the kingdom of God is what we are called to do. It's important because this is how Jesus prayed. We call it the Lord's Prayer, literally, because it's Jesus's prayer. But also, this is what Jesus prayed when he was alone with the Father. Jesus would often, uh, you know, go to be by himself. He'd draw away from his disciples, and he would pray to God. And But Jesus also prayed in John 17 that we would be one with him as he and the Father are one. And Jesus wants us to pray, and he's giving us a pattern, a pattern prayer for how we can pray and how we can connect to God. And he does this because we tend to get prayer wrong. Last week, we talked about how you can uh, pray with the wrong motives, but sometimes we just pray in the wrong way. And, and here in uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, it says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Um, so we often can pray like that. The Gentiles were people who were outside of God's covenant family, and they would pray to their gods. They would pray to their, to their idols. And uh, they would pray kind of these empty phrases or these empty words, and they would say them over and over again. And they did this believing that if they just said them long enough and prayed hard enough, they could move the will of the gods to do whatever it was that they were wanting, whether that was bringing rain for their crops or providing for them in some way. And so they had these repetitive invocations and incantations, and they would just say them over and over and over again. Well, many of us pray like that. We pray empty words. We pray repetitive words that lack heart. Imagine rushing through your dinner prayer. You know, God, thank you for this food, made it to the nourishment of our body. And we just run through it, not really thinking about the words that we're saying. We repeat words, either scripted prayers or spontaneously. We tend to say the same things without thinking about what we're saying. And Jesus says in verse eight, don't be like them. Don't pray like that. Because this type of prayer is disconnected from relationship. So we can often see God in our prayers as someone who's far off, as, as a distant God. And what we think about when we pray is that we need to strong arm him into, into answering our prayers because he really doesn't want to answer them. But this is the truth. God never begrudgingly answers prayer. In verse eight, at the end of verse eight, in fact, it says, do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. How incredible is that? That's totally relational. The basis of prayer is a new relationship to God through Jesus, that he is now your father if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your savior. And because he's your father, now you are his child. You're his son or his daughter. And this changes absolutely everything. This changes why we pray. This changes how we pray. This changes what we pray. Because Jesus was the first in the Bible to call God Father. No one before Jesus addressed the God of the universe as Father. And it was shocking for Jesus' hearers, for, for them to hear him call God Father over and over and over again. How can you call this all-powerful God Father? But that's what you and I get in the gospel. 
we get an intimate relationship with God that we now get to call this all-knowing God Father. And this all-knowing God knows what you need even before you pray it. So for us, prayer is not about convincing God to get on your side. It's not about changing God's mind. So what is prayer for us? It's about changing you. It's about changing your heart. And so Jesus gives us the Lord's prayer because prayer is hard sometimes. We lose focus. We lose track. We don't know what to pray. But he says, here's a type of prayer, a pattern for prayer that will draw you unto the heart of God and will cause you to long for the kingdom. See, our big idea that we're going to unpack today is that the Lord's prayer reorients your heart to God and to his priorities. The Lord's Prayer reorients your heart to God and his priorities. The Lord's Prayer is structured in, in, in kind of an unsurprising way. The two highest kingdom values that we love God and that we love our neighbor. Are you starting to see a pattern in the Sermon on the Mount yet? That we're called to love God and love neighbor. So let's unpack how the Lord's Prayer does this in our lives. Firstly, we're going to look at the, the idea that the Lord's Prayer reorients your heart to God. It reorients your heart to the Lord. We see in the beginning of verse nine, it says, pray then like this, our father in heaven. Remember again, you're speaking to a father, not, not a distant, absent father, not someone who's uncaring. You're not talking to a boss. This prayer is inviting you to change your heart towards God. It's inviting you into relationship with God. And we see the way that it changes how we view God in three different ways. Firstly, we see that it changes how we view his name. It says, hallowed be your name. You probably haven't used the word hallowed in the last couple of weeks. It's not a word we typically use, but very similar to like the word Halloween. It means holy. Halloween is like holy days. So this hallowedness is a reverence, a uniqueness, an otherness, a holiness to the name of God. His name should be considered holy. See, for us in the 21st century, names don't mean as much as they often did in ancient times. That, you know, for us, you, know, you might have been named after a family member, but your name's probably not tied to your very identity. In Jesus's time, your name said a lot about who you are. You know, when Amy and I first were, were engaged, she came back uh, to Alabama with me to meet my family. And uh, she was really shocked when everybody started calling me Steve. So you know, I, I go by Stephen, but when I was a little kid, my, everybody called me Steve and it completely threw her off because to, in her mind, Steve is a completely different person. Stephen sounds like a responsible adult and Steve sounds like the guy who brings the party wherever he goes. These are two completely different people. My name meant something. God's name is loaded with meaning. In fact, the most high and reverent name for God in the entire Old Testament is Yahweh, which is literally, I am what I am. It's just the, really the word to be that God, it's hard to describe, it's that God is existence itself. But also there were 85 different names that are used for God in the Old Testament. Here's just a list of a few. El Elyon, the most high God. El Olam, the everlasting unchanging God. El Shaddai, God Almighty, full of grace. El Roy, the God who sees. Jehovah Rohi, the Lord, my shepherd. Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. 
you see wrapped up in all of those names for God, something incredible about his character, about who he is, that his very reputation is wrapped up in his names. And so as Christians, we should want to pray in a way that God would be revered, that God would be honored, that God would be worshiped for who he is and what he has done. And that increasingly we would see him considered hallowed in our lives and throughout the entire world. So when we pray, we pray to God and we glorify his name. We worship him, we honor him. And the basis of worship is that we reflect back to God who he is and what he's done according to his great name. Evangelism is the same thing that we tell people about Jesus. That people are saved through the name of Jesus, that we make disciples, we baptize them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We want to see every corner of creation filled with his glory. This is why Habakkuk 2.14 told of this day, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is why our vision statement as a church is to see every person in every neighborhood experience the gospel, that we want everyone to see the hallowedness and the glory of God's name. But secondly, the second thing that changes in the way that we view God is, 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 is his kingdom. We see in verse 10, your kingdom come. We've been talking a lot about the kingdom of God over the last couple of months. And, but, but is there something interesting here where it calls us to pray for the kingdom come? Is the, the phrasing there is so interesting because hasn't Jesus already said that his kingdom has come? He said back in Matthew 3, verse 2, that the, the kingdom of God is at hand, that it is here, that it has come. So yes, it has come, but it's still on its way. It has come and it is coming. So what we are doing is we are called to pray for the kingdom of God to continue to come and continue to advance until the whole earth is like heaven. And it's hard for us to get that idea because of how we often think of heaven and earth. If you have any sort of biblical background, you may have probably thought of like, okay, well, like earth is bad and heaven is good. And so Jesus is coming to rescue us from earth and take us back to heaven. But that's not exactly what the Bible teaches. It actually teaches something very different. In the book of Genesis, there's this picture that heaven and earth, are, it's like they overlap. It's like they're overlapping circles. They completely overlap in such a way that God and man and woman are together all the time, that there's this perfect relationship, this perfect union, that God is among and with his creation. But we see in the book of Genesis, rebellion happens. This is what we call the fall, where Adam and Eve, they rejected God and they said that they wanted to drive God out of his own world in order to be in control. And this is why the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was never about them stealing fruit. It was that they decided that they wanted to be in control and basically said, I've got this God. And, and what happens in this is they push God, attempting to push God out of his creation. But you see this, this little sliver of hope where the, maybe those cir circles are still kind of overlapping a little bit, like a Venn diagram, where there's one who's going to come and make everything right who's going to restore what is broken. See, the biblical story is about heaven reclaiming earth. That one day there will be a new heavens and a new earth and it'll be restored the way that it should be. And Revelation 21 gives us this vision. It says in verses two through four, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. So you see the coming back together. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. See, prayer, praying for the kingdom is about increasingly seeing earth look more like heaven. And we do this by praying and longing for people to trust Jesus. Our deepest, most fundamental problem is that we are sinners separated from God and that Jesus came in, stood in the gap and made a way for us to return to him. And so my question for you is, if you are a follower of Jesus, does your heart beat for that? Do you Do you pray? and long for your neighbor to know Jesus? Do you pray for every corner of our neighborhood and for the nations to know Christ? That's one piece of it, but it's also the kingdom coming is that the world would be made right. We see this at the end of Revelation 21 there, that that there would be no more tears, there'd be no more pain. In other words, as heaven invades earth, there will eventually be no more evil. No more injustice, no more oppression, no more racism, no more poverty, because God hates those things. God hates oppression. He hates poverty. He hates racism. He hates disunity. And he's driving those out of the world. And so we're called to pray for the kingdom. And the way that you need to pray for the kingdom in light of your life is probably in the ways that we tend. We tend to fall into one of two ditches. Some of us fall into the ditch of prayerless action. We want the kingdom without the king. We want to tell people about Jesus in our own strength. We believe if we get the right policies and the right things in place that we can actually love and care for people. And those aren't bad things, but if we do those things without the power of God, without God empowering us through prayer, we're missing the point. But the other ditch is just as bad. It's actionless prayer that there's a missing connection between our head and our heart and our hands, that we theologically understand that we're to love people and share the hope of Jesus and and try to address oppression and injustice in our own neighborhood, but it doesn't move us to actionably loving our neighbor. So whichever one of these that you're struggling with, pray for God to give us prayerful action. The third way we see the kingdom reorient us to God is through, uh, is, is through addressing his will. It says here, your will be done. This is a recognition that God wants to, what, that what God wants to happen is a better plan than what we want to happen. Listen, we make lousy gods. We make terrible gods. And your best vision and my best vision and my best plans pale in comparison to Jesus's. And so longing for God's will to be done is believing that his ultimate plan unfolding is for your ultimate good. But you need to see how this is also relational. It means, God, I want you more than my own way. See, this is the, this is the definition of an, of an idol. It's that thing that you would want, even if it cost you God. It's that thing that if you could get it without God's help, you would want it. And sometimes that's being in control of our own lives. We see an example of this with Jacob. Jacob is a figure in the Old Testament. He was Abraham's grandson. 
And the dude's a scoundrel. He's an absolute scoundrel. And this is one of the things that makes me realize that the Bible is true is because all of these people are deeply flawed. Everybody but Jesus is deeply flawed. There's no hero in the Bible but Jesus. Jacob was a liar. He was a thief. He manipulated people in situations and circumstances to get his way. And one night in, in the book of Genesis, God visits Jacob and God wrestles with Jacob all night. Now, here's my question. If God is wrestling with you, who's going to win that wrestling match? God will. And all of a sudden, God touches the hip socket of Jacob and dislocates his hip. And what does Jacob do? He like bear hugs God and will not let God go. And he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Because, and I want to see your face. Now in the Old Testament, it says that anyone who saw the face of God would die. But what happened? Jacob doesn't die. He finally got it. His heart was finally reoriented to God where he realized, God, I want you more than getting my own way. God may be bringing you to a place of brokenness to show you that you can trust him and he's all that you need. When you pray, God is changing your heart to want him most. And he does this to affect the way that you ask. Secondly, the Lord's prayer reorients your heart towards yourself and others. Listen, when you pray for God's will, this isn't a cop-out. You're not hedging your bets. You're, you're not being passive. It actually frees you to ask big prayers. It's like, listen, it's like, ask away. When you get your relationship with God right, you can ask rightly. Tim Keller, speaking of this, talking about looking for your daily bread, he says, don't run off to give us today our daily bread until you've dealt with the fact of who God is to you. So we deal with who God is in order to ask rightly, and this reorients how we see ourselves and others. In verse 11, we see this. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, you have to remember that when this was written, there was no refrigeration. There was, there was no Trader Joe's. There's no corner store. You couldn't just hop around the, the corner to your favorite place to get empanadas. You couldn't do that. You were eating hand to mouth. Like you, you, were, you were, whatever you could grow is what you eat. So when you pray, he's saying, ask for what, you're, what you need and God will provide it. Now, for us, it's hard to see this because for most of us, not all of us, we don't really worry about where our next meal is going to come from. Some of us do, and, that, and that's a very real thing. But whether you feel very comfortable with what you make or you feel like maybe you're really struggling, all of us worry because we think we're the ones in control. We think, I've got this. What Jesus is saying is that your heart posture has to change because you can't say, I've got this. Some of us think that we're where we are because of our hard work, because we pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, because we're good at saving. And I'm not saying that you haven't worked hard for these things, but do you understand when you believe that you're ultimately the, the captain of your own destiny, that that's really arrogant? Because who gave you your intellect? Who gave you your talent and abilities and your opportunities? Who allowed you to be born into the family that you were born in? God gave all of that. And so what Jesus is saying is, he says, you need to orient your heart towards me like a beggar. 
You need to orient your heart towards God in such a way that you trust that he's the one that provides. And what this changes is that you don't feel entitled anymore because everything's a gift. And if everything's a gift and you're not earning it, you don't see your resources as something to hoard, but as something to share with others. We trust God for our daily bread in order to share it with others. So who can you share your daily bread with? I believe it could be people in your community group. Listen, right now we're in an unprecedented time where we feel completely disconnected and there is loneliness in our church right now where we feel disconnected from one another. How could you understand what's going on in somebody else's life and reach across the aisle, reach across the computer screen, make a phone call, show up at somebody's house and share the good gifts that God's given you? The second way we see God change us in relation to ourselves and others is forgiveness. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. When you pray, you can confess your sins to God and you can ask for forgiveness and he'll give it. And he, and he refers to these as debts. So sin is not just missing the mark or making a mistake, but it's like a running tab. And, and each time it's like you're adding to a debt that you can't pay off, but here's the gospel. Jesus paid your debt in full, every bit of it. 100% of it so that you could be forgiven. And so this is what the kingdom of God is like. Forgiveness is freely given. So much so, so core to this, that you're expected to forgive because the Father has forgiven you. And so Jesus doubles down in verses 14 and 15. And he says, look, if you don't forgive, you don't get the gospel. If you cannot forgive others, you may not even be a Christian because you have to understand real forgiveness. Because this is how most of us approach repentance, asking for forgiveness. We try to earn it. And here's how we try to earn it. We feel like we have to feel sorry enough. We beat ourselves up and we say, I can't believe I did that. God, I'll never do it again. What's the problem with that statement? That's not grace. That's not grace. That's not coming to God like the old hymn said, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That, that's saying, I need to do something in order for you to forgive me. And that's why I think a lot of us have a hard time forgiving others is we want them to earn it. We want them to feel sorry enough. But forgiveness is laying down our right to, to get even. And when we truly forgive, it's powerful. You know, the, the, the musical Hamilton, everybody loves that right now. It's on Disney Plus. You should definitely watch it. It's, a, it's an incredible story. Um, Hamilton was a deeply flawed man. He was brilliant, but he cheated on his wife. He lost his son in a duel. And in one of the songs, he, he's unpacking this with his wife. And he finally hits this point of contrition and brokenness. And he says, if, if I could spare his life, talking about his son, if I could trade his life for mine, he'd be standing here right now and you would smile and that would be enough. And a little later on, we see the, the importance of relationship. But I'm not afraid. I know who I married. Just let me stay here by your side. That would be enough. See, forgiveness provides the ground and the opportunity to make relationship right. And here's what the father has done. He spared your life. The son did trade places with you so that you could stand by Jesus's, the father's side and it would be enough. Jesus is 
enough for you. Forgiveness is beautiful and powerful and part of the kingdom. But it also Jesus addresses how we view hard things. Verse 13, he says, lead us not into temptation. God changes our hearts in order that we can face the most difficult things in our life. Temptation here, don't think sin. God doesn't tempt us like that, but, but this is trial. It's okay to ask God not to face trials. Jesus did this in the garden of Gethsemane. Uh, the night before the crucifixion, Jesus said, take this cup from me. And then think about how raw and honest that is. Jesus is saying, I know what I'm about to face and I don't want to face it. Some of you are facing things or have faced things that none of us could possibly imagine. And it's okay to ask God not to lead you there, to ask God to protect you. But here's the other half of this phrase. But if he does, he will deliver you from evil. Because Jesus in the garden also said, but Lord, if you don't take this cup from me, nevertheless, your will be done. I trust you. You're enough for me. Your will is good. If the worst possible happens to you, it's not evidence that God has left you, but paradoxically, it actually means he loves you and he's with you and he will deliver you because he's giving you himself. It's as Corey Tinboom, the great missionary to China, she said this, it was wonderful. She said, you, have never, you may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Do you want this type of intimacy with God? Do you want to know God as Father? Do you want to see a, your heart change and your love towards Him and your love towards others? It only comes through Jesus. Unless you know Jesus, you can't know the Father and Jesus' arms are open wide for you. So my question for you this morning is, do you have a relationship with Jesus? If you do, run to Him, pray through Him, long for Him, and the Father is near you in whatever you're facing. But if you don't yet know Jesus, if you've not trusted Him to take away your sins, if you don't have a relationship with Him, we would love to talk with you about what that would look like. Shoot, send us a message. We'd love to pray with you and talk about what a life with Jesus looks like. Let's pray. 